This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. West Side Story cleaned up at the Academy Awards for 1961, taking a near record 10 Oscars and near instant proclaim as a classic. So that means the movie musical is back, right? Well, yes and no. Studios did start to talk about making more movie musicals after West Side Story's success at the box office and at the Oscars. But getting those films approved, filmed, and released takes time, at least two years. The big trend in movie musicals continued to be adapting those that were successes on the Broadway stage, and in 1962 we got the film version of the Tony-winning show The Music Man. That musical is best known as being the one that beat West Side Story for the best musical Tony in 1958. While The Music Man did well at the box office in 1962, it never reached the heights that West Side Story achieved as a movie. And though I really like The Music Man, it's not West Side Story. In the early years of sound and cinema, many of the Broadway musicals that became movies got new scores written for them or scrapped the Broadway song score in favor of a completely new one. Remember that the winner of the first Academy Award for Best Song, The Continental, came from a Broadway show that was made into a movie, The Gay Divorcee. But lately, movie musical adaptations have pretty much been sticking with the original story and songs, which is not giving a lot of work to Hollywood songwriters. Producing just one or two songs a year instead of ten, as Harry Warren and others had to do in the 1940s, was the common way of life for even the best songwriters in Hollywood in the early 1960s. The Music Man was a victim of this shift, as creator Meredith Wilson only wrote one new song for the movie version, the instantly forgettable Being in Love. And though Sammy Kahn called them out, film score composers were quickly becoming the ones writing the music for the original songs, often putting lyricists in to complete the work. Of the five nominated songs for the year 1962, only one is written by a composer of song melodies instead of a composer of complete film scores. That one song is the title song from the adaptation of the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, Tender is the Night. Sammy Fain wrote the music for the song with his longtime lyricist partner, Paul Francis Webster. Fain had taken a bit of a break from songwriting but came back at Webster's insistence. And the result was Fane's seventh Oscar nomination and the tenth for Webster. Bernard Herrmann was the composer of the film score for Tender is the Night, and he would never write a theme song for any of his movies. Fane and Webster stepped in to give us a love song that runs just about 90 seconds about a romance that will still be fondly remembered even after it ends. <laughs>
Tony Bennett, who was in 1962 just starting to break out into his own instead of being compared to Frank Sinatra, recorded Tender as the Night for his album, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. His version added in an extra verse where the musical bridge happens in the film version. That album, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, included the title song that would become Tony Bennett's signature song and win the Grammy for Record of the Year in 1963. Tender as the Night was the biggest hit record for Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster since Doris Day sang Secret Love back in 1953. Webster was hoping for another hit song when he was brought in to help Oscar-winning composer Bronislav Kaper with writing a love song for the epic film Mutiny on the Bounty, the remake of 1935's Best Picture winner. This would turn out to be a more difficult assignment than writing Tender as the Night. The song that Caper and Webster created has a very simple title, Love Song from Mutiny on the Bounty, and it's performed in the film after the English ship Bounty arrives in Tahiti to take the local breadfruit from the islands to the English slave plantations in the Caribbean. While there, the English sailors find themselves drawn to the local women, not surprising after their long journey from England to Tahiti in the Pacific Ocean. The voiceover of the ship's captain tells us that the Tahitian women find lighter skin beautiful, and we're treated to a montage of various sailors frolicking with Tahitian women. The love song is performed by an off-screen chorus and sung completely in the Tahitian language. Here's a translation of the lyrics. Come, my love, come, come, beneath the light. I receive my little flower in the night. You and I will go out and dream underneath the stars. You are next to the rainbow. My body is beautiful. Come, my love, come.
The sailors just want to have a frolic in the sand, so the song that plays over this montage is very one-sided. I'm not sure even the Tahitian women are feeling any love toward the sailors, but it's a better sentiment for the purposes of this scene to make it seem romantic and less bawdy. I'm unable to find any information on the work Webster had to do in creating these lyrics in the Tahitian language. But the finished product feels like it was generations old, and not one written by an American lyricist and Polish composer. It was probably the easiest part of production for director Lewis Milestone, who replaced Carol Reed after three months of filming. Marlon Brando was unpleasant during the entire production, according to quotes from just about everyone involved, and weather in Tahiti made filming difficult. When the film came out, it was considered a flop even though it made $12 million. It cost about $45 million to make, so MGM made no money on the deal. And Marlon Brando's British accent was a deal-breaker for audiences and critics, who couldn't get past it to enjoy the film in any way. The movie was nominated for Best Picture, against all odds, and the love song was the only one of the nominees to come from a Best Picture nominee that year. Bronislav Kaper was also nominated for his score to the movie, which would be his last for MGM after nearly 20 years working for the studio. The inevitable commercial single didn't come out until March 1963, five months after the film's debut and right in the middle of Oscar voting. Caper and Webster created a more Americanized version of their song, though some elements remained from the film version to keep the tropical feel. But in the end, the lyrics of the song, now called Follow Me, are almost entirely different from the film version, though the melody somewhat remains intact. Jack Jones sings this version, recorded almost a year after he had won the Grammy for Best Pop Male Vocal Performance for the song Lollipops and Roses. Come with me to the islands. Come, my love, follow, follow me. Under the
Webster's hope of having two hit songs were dashed when Jack Jones' record failed to make much of a public impression. The negative press from the movie probably had an effect on that, though renaming it Follow Me should have helped distance the English language song from the movie. Bronislav Caper was looking to win Oscar number two, and maybe three, for his work on Mutiny on the Bounty, hoping to join that exclusive club of composers who have won Oscars for songwriting and composing. One of the three men already in that club was Henry Mancini, freshly minted after winning Oscars for the score and main song from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mancini's next assignment was in production as he was picking up his Oscars in April 1962, and it was Blake Edwards' seething drama Days of Wine and Roses. It was as opposite of a film as you could really get from Breakfast at Tiffany's, about an alcoholic couple who go into a steep decline. It's tough subject matter, and probably an impossible task to write a theme song based on it. Perhaps fortunately, Mancini and lyricist Johnny Mercer weren't told about the plot when Blake Edwards commissioned the song from them. All they knew was the title of the movie was Days of Wine and Roses, and off they went to the piano to write something. Mancini had the bones of the melody written in a half hour. Mercer remembered the poem from which the film's title is based, written by Ernest Dowson in the 1890s. They are not long, the days of wine and roses. Out of a misty dream, our path emerges for a while, then closes within a dream. Mercer took that portion of the poem and ran with it. In his biography, Skylark, Mercer is quoted as saying, I can't take credit for that one. God wrote that lyric. All I did was take it down. Mercer wrote about a door marked nevermore that was closing and impossible to pass through. None of what he wrote had anything to do with alcoholism or a crumbling marriage. And when you listen to the song, notice that it's comprised of just two verses, each of them one long sentence. It feels like you're in Dowson's misty dream as you hear it playing over the film's opening credits.
Though the song has nothing to do with the main plot of the film, it could describe the beginnings of the courtship that co-stars Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick have at the film's start, and how it disappears so quickly. Filming many of the scenes were tough on Lemmon and Remick, and after one tough day of filming, director Blake Edwards took them into a separate soundstage to hear the song. Many years later, Lemmon recalled the day he first heard the song. One of my all-time favorite moments in my entire career was the first time that I ever heard The Days of Wine and Roses after Hank and uh, Johnny Mercer had written it. We were still shooting the film and Lee Remick and I were doing a very difficult scene. Blake said, fine, let's go to lunch. And then he motioned to me and to Lee and he said, come on with us. And uh, so the five of us, Hank and uh, Lee and I and Blake and uh, Johnny Mercer walked out the stage door and uh, through the stage door to the, of the next stage, which was empty. And it was really like out of one of those old MGM musicals. There was no lights on, just one single light by an old upright piano and a box for a stool sitting in front of it that they had set up, and uh, Hank went over, sat down on the box, and started to noodle on the piano. And uh, Johnny walked over to the uh, light by the piano, and he pulled out an envelope out of his inner pocket, and he turned over the envelope, and obviously he had written on the back of the envelope. And Hank hit the first chord, and Johnny started to sing, The Days... I go every time I think of this. Anyway, he went through the song, and we were gone, totally wiped out. It was a great, great moment. It really was. I knew then that the man had created, that they had created something extraordinary in that piece of music and, and that lyric. The film version of the song was fairly popular and another million record seller for Mancini. When that version peaked at number 33 on the Billboard charts, Andy Williams' version was working its way up, passing Mancini's version the week of the Academy Awards in April 1963. The day child at play through a meadowland toward 
Like Mancini, Andre Previn was already a two-time Oscar winner, coming off wins for adapting musical scores in 1958 and 1959. His new wife, Dory Langdon, joined him to write a song for Shirley MacLaine's new movie called Two for the Seesaw, an adaptation of a Broadway play that had starred Anne Bancroft in MacLaine's role as a dancer who falls in love with Robert Mitchum's out-of-town lawyer. The song, originally just called Song from Two for the Seesaw, was subtitled Second Chance. The performance of the song in the movie barely qualifies it for an Academy Award nomination, coming in a scene when Mitchum goes to a party where we hear the song playing. Mitchum is looking for McLean's character at the party, and her best friend says she isn't there. With so much dialogue in the scene, it's virtually impossible to make out the lyrics in the song as it plays in the film. And only one minute of the song is heard, which I guess was enough to satisfy the music branch of the Academy. The song is heavy on the jazz flavor, feeling like it could be performed at an underground jazz club in New York City or at a party with lots of jazz fans, which probably accurately describes the party where we hear the song. It's performed by jazz singer Jackie Kane, and she sings about wanting a second chance to fall in love with her man promising that their romance is not fleeting. Can't I have a second chance? 
once I won't ask for any more Can't you give a second chance When you've had three or four Perhaps you couldn't love with me But now it's turn about I'm out Does it have to be Can't I have a second chance It's so to demand Won't you take a second glance Then you might understand You're more than just an My one romance Can't I have A second chance You're more than just an My one romance Can't I have A second chance How did a song that appears for only one minute in a movie and barely audible over dialogue make the list of the five Academy Award-nominated songs of 1962? I wish I had the answer, but I'd have to get into the minds of the hundred members of the music branch at the time. The commercial record by Jackie Kane didn't do well with the public, so popularity wasn't the reason. The best educated guess is that there weren't a lot of exciting options in 1962 as potential nominees, and the music branch didn't have many options better than Second Chance. It's not a bad song by any means, but the way it's presented in the film doesn't help promote it as a song of much importance. This brings up a theory I've had about the reasons why many of the songs from the late 1950s and early 1960s were able to snag nominations. It's likely there weren't many options for the music branch to nominate, especially when Hollywood wasn't churning out about a dozen musicals each year. If the movie industry isn't making the types of movies that would call for great original songs, then the options to fill that category at the Academy Awards would be pretty slim. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences doesn't make the list of eligible songs from that time period publicly available, 
So it's difficult to tell how many songs were eligible and whether some of the ones left off the list of final five were worthy of a nomination. And there was no denying that the fifth nominated song of 1962 was featured in its film. Walk on the Wild Side, coming from the film of the same name, is performed at a brothel where the character played by Capuchin works as a prostitute. There's an on-screen jazz band performing the music, but the singer is never seen as he sings to someone about their chances of going to hell being six to one because of a life in sin. That's a perfect song to be performed at a brothel and very fitting for the New Orleans location. Sinner, hear what I'm saying. Sinner, you've been swinging, not praying. One day of praying and six nights of fun. The odds against going to heaven, six to one. You walk on the wild. The devil is waiting He's waiting to take your hand You walk on the wild side You're walking with fading Away from the promised land One day of praying and six nights of fun The odds against going to heaven, six to one You better cross over You better walk humble Or you're gonna stumble And Satan is waiting to take your hand You walk on the wild side You walk on the wild side Away from the promised land Mr. Benito's been waiting for you Company like you, I don't know what he wants me for The odds against going to heaven Six to one the odds against going to heaven six to Shampoo. The song is performed by Brooke Burden, who was one of the few black songwriters to have numerous hit songs in the 1950s. His 1959 hit, It's Just a Matter of Time, was a million record seller, making him a national sensation. We hear him perform the song once more during the closing credits, which features a black cat slinking along as we see a newspaper headline that the brothel's owners were convicted of life imprisonment. The music arrangement is a bit different, more gospel-sounding, with a bit of a blues undertone. And Brooks is joined by a chorus that reminds viewers that a life like the ones practically everyone leads in the movie will not get them to heaven. Sinner, 
Nights of fun The odds against going to heaven Six to one of fun The odds against going to heaven six to one The odds against going to heaven six to This movie is a little melodramatic at times, but it's decent entertainment that toes the line of what was considered indecent in the 1960s. There's an insinuation that two characters are having a lesbian love affair, and Jane Fonda's character wants to have sex with any man who walks by her. This was Fonda's second film role, starting off a legendary career that started on Broadway and turned to movies where she followed in her father Henry's shadow. You probably know the name Leonard Bernstein from his work on West Side Story. And though the man who wrote the music for the song Walk on the Wild Side spells his last name the same, it's pronounced differently. Elmer Bernstein was not related to Leonard Bernstein, but he had been doing very well in his own right as a film composer since the early 1950s, breaking through with his epic score for the Ten Commandments in 1956. One of his best scores came the same year as his musical work on Walk on the Wild Side. Bernstein's score for To Kill a Mockingbird has been regarded as one of the finest in film history, and also viewed as Bernstein's best work. He would receive an Oscar nomination for that score in addition to his work on writing Walk on the Wild Side with Mac David. As for Mac David, this is the darkest song he's written in his career. Remember that his first Oscar nomination came for writing Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo for Cinderella, and he wrote the theme song for The Bugs Bunny Show. The hallmark of a great lyricist, though, is being a chameleon, and Mac David proved that with Walk on the Wild Side. I spoke about the lack of original songs available for the music branch to nominate lately, and that wasn't helped by the lack of original musicals made in Hollywood. One of the original musicals of 1962 was called Hey, Let's Twist. As a response to the popular new dance craze, The Twist, started by Chubby Checker's song. The movie is funny for all the wrong reasons, mostly because the actors are probably fresh out of community college acting school. Four of the eight songs in Hey, Let's Twist have the word twist in the title, which certainly would have made it confusing picking which one might have been good. Even if the songs by Joey D. and Henry Glover were deemed original to the movie, 
it might have been a hard sell to the Academy since all the twist songs in the movie are pretty much carbon copies of the Chubby Checker song. In 1961, Judy Garland was essentially persona non grata in Hollywood, with her struggles to addiction making her a gamble for movies. But she did get a role in 1962 that didn't require her to be on screen. It was in the lead role in one of the first feature-length animated movies not made by Disney, called Gay Paris. Garland plays a cat named Musette, who visits Paris and works to become a sophisticated cat. The 11 songs written for the movie were composed by two men who knew Judy Garland's voice well. Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg won Oscars 23 years earlier for the song Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. And this was the first time the two of them had written songs for Garland since The Wizard of Oz. Arlen had written music for The Man That Got Away for A Star Is Born in 1954, which was the last time he was an Oscar nominee. Harburg, though, had not been as busy. His last movie song credit came in 1944's Can't Help Singing, which was his last Oscar nomination. And it took a lot of persuasion by Judy Garland to get Harburg back into writing. The Academy wanted to recognize this reunion with at least an Oscar nomination, putting the song Little Drops of Rain on the list of 10 songs that made it through preliminary voting. It's a throwaway song, sung by Garland's Musette as an inspiration for her love interest, that small drops of rain helped cause the great big ocean. Little drops of rain Little grains of sand Make the mighty ocean And the pleasant land Little notes that sing Little words that rhyme Make the mighty memories And the dreams of time Never let a minute Lie there on the shelf For there may be in it All of life itself It's a good song. But it could be argued that since the movie Gay Paris didn't do very well, enough music branch voters didn't know of the song. Or they did like it, but not enough to put it higher on their ballots in the final round of nominations voting. Now, I know I remind you of this a lot, but remember that nominations voting for the original song award is done by preferential ballot, meaning that the voters rank their song choices 1 to 5 on the final ballot and the ones that get to a particular magic number get the nomination. In 1962, there were about 140 members in the music branch, which meant one of the 10 songs on the preliminary ballot had to get at least 29 votes to become an official nominee. 
and the star power behind Little Drops of Rain wasn't enough to get it another nomination for Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg. So that's that. Five songs named as official Oscar nominees for 1962. Days of Wine and Roses, Follow Me, Second Chance, Tender is the Night, and Walk on the Wild Side. None of the original performers had to worry about getting asked to perform at the Academy Awards ceremony on April 8, 1963. The show's producer, Arthur Freed, the former head of MGM's musical department, decided that a montage of the nominated songs would be better this year. Probably because very few of the songs were hits. And he thought people might turn off their televisions when they heard Follow Me or Second Chance. Robert Goulet, who was already a Broadway star thanks to his work in Camelot, sang portions of all five of the nominees. Then, ceremony host Frank Sinatra quipped that Arthur Freed had picked a very sweet fellow to read the nominees and announce the winner. After rushing through the list of nominees, Sinatra made the history-making announcement that Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer were the first songwriters to win two years in a row thanks to their song, Days of Wine and Roses. Mancini referred to the famous line in last year's Oscar-winning song when thanking Johnny Mercer, calling him my huckleberry friend. The glad-handing didn't end there for Mancini and Mercer, who had to wait more than a year before finding out if Days of Wine and Roses would make it another sweep for them at the Grammys in Record of the Year and Song of the Year. Because the commercial recording of the song was not released until 1963, the song was not eligible for the 1962 award ceremony, even though the film came out at the end of 1962. So when the Grammy ceremony of May 12, 1964 came, Days of Wine and Roses was nominated for three awards, including Record of the Year and Song of the Year. And once again, Mancini and Mercer were the toast of the Grammys, with the two of them winning Song of the Year. And since Henry Mancini is the only credited artist on the commercial release, he was the one who received the Grammy for Record of the Year. I've mentioned Johnny Mercer's depression that came in the late 1950s after a string of disappointing songs that never sold. These two Oscar wins in a row certainly had to boost his spirits as he became the first four-time Oscar-winning songwriter, standing above Harry Warren as well as Ray Evans and Jay Livingston. We should now count Henry Mancini on that list as a three-time Oscar winner, though one of those Oscars came for his breakfast at Tiffany's score. As he was finding space on his mantle to hold all those awards, Johnny Mercer re-embarked on his lifelong quest to have a hit Broadway musical. He thought it was sure to come with the show Foxy, starring Burt Lahr, best known as the Cowardly Lion in The Wizard of Oz. The show about prospectors in the gold rush of the 1820s had its debut far away from Broadway in 1963, the Yukon Territory of Canada. It was a decent success there compared to the Broadway run that lasted 72 performances and never recouped its investment. The whole thing put Mercer off on making another big Broadway show. I'm sorry I didn't save myself a year or two's worry by just saying no, Mercer said later. I loved everybody in the show, but I just don't get any kicked out of spending all that time and effort getting into backstage politics when one song can make me twice as much money. The last two songs that Mercer wrote won an Academy Award, probably involved a total of a month's worth of work 
and made him very wealthy and respected. So will the nominated songs in 1963 measure up to the classic status that Days of Wine and Roses has obtained? We'll find out in the next episode of the Best Song Podcast as the Disney Studio brings us its first original musical in four years and Frank Sinatra has another film in the works, which obviously means there's a song or two for him to sing. Thanks so much for singing along with me on this episode. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.